For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lammer, here with your other hosts, Evan Ratliff of The Atavist, Max Linsky of Long Form. I say good day to you. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Yes. It Big show. Day. This, uh, we've, we're we're, uh, we're uh, brimming over with giddy joy at, our get, at the guest we've landed this week, uh, who is Michael Lewis. Uh, he's someone we wanted to have on the show. I think he was. I think he was top on our uh, heat chart. Yeah, we've had a list. He has been. Uh, it's in a spreadsheet. He is in the first row of the spreadsheet. Yes, for a year and a half. He's he's for held, good reason. held down. He's still number one on the list, even though he's been on the show. Actually, <laughs> uh, I should note briefly before uh, this, the interview was great. He's incredible. Um, he was interested in not talking about his book, which is great because. Uh, he has a lot of other interesting stuff to talk about going back to his early days at New Republic, et cetera. Uh, we got a 30 minute interview slot between two like call it radio shows. So, uh, this one is short, uh, short, but sweet. And he, but he, he really got a lot packed in there. Yeah. It's a good one. Pretty excited. Uh, I don't know how to transition with packing and podcasting, but maybe if you're packing your house and you're moving and you want to listen to a book. It's a great time to listen to a book. Yeah. You know where you'd go? You'd go to Audible. Yeah. You'd go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Uh, you get a free book. You get a free month trial. Go check it out. Audiblepodcast.com slash longform. When you're done with that book and you want to tell the whole world about it, uh, maybe you would like to start a book club email newsletter or an email newsletter of any kind. The best place to do it is with Tiny Letter. Um, this is from the people who do MailChimp, but it's their simple sort of stripped down really easy to use um, small community newsletter service. I highly recommend it. Tiny Letter, thank you again for all your sponsorship. And now here's Aaron with Michael Lewis. Where am I talking to you? I'm in my office in Berkeley, California. That is my hometown. Really? Yes. Where'd you grow up? You know where Indian Rock Park is? Yeah. That's my block. I told my mother a couple of weeks ago, I was doing this podcast, and every time I've brought it up, she says, um, you have to get him to tell the story he told at the Children's Hospital fundraiser. <laughs> uh, my father works at Children's Hospital. Uh, I didn't. She tried to tell it to me. It involves one of your children urinating in a pool. Uh, kind of, yes. Uh, you can link to it on YouTube. They, I think they YouTube all those Children's Hospital fundraisers. Going into the show notes. Um more pertinently, I'd like to talk a bit about Flash Boys. Um, yep. Actually, in a larger sense, I kind of want to ask you how you find your stories. Yeah, I don't. We, if you want to talk about whatever you're talking about, we don't have to talk about Flash Boys because I'm sick of it already. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so, how I find my stories? Yeah, you um, seem attracted to a kind of a, a person fighting against the tide of a system. So, I think I'm really asking, how do you find your people? It hasn't been up to this point all that conscious and I'm not actually looking for a person fighting the system. I think it's, it's probably true that I, when I find someone who is 
who can describe a system that hasn't been described, um, uh, I'm, I'm interested. And the people who can do that often are people who are fighting the system. So how do I find, how do I find them? So it's, it's kind of, there's a randomness to it. Brad Katsuyama and the people at IEX, I found only because I needed someone who could explain high frequency trading to me. Um, for a piece I was doing on Serge Alenikoff, the high-frequency trader from Goldman Sachs. Oh, so that piece came first. I didn't write the piece first. Well, I did. I wrote... The writing, the writing is a messier subject. But the, <laughs> but, but the... I just... I got interested... That's how I got interested first. And when I discovered Brad Katsuyama and IEX, I thought, oh my God, this whole thing is a book. Uh, but I didn't, but I went, when I first sat down with them, it really was, I thought they were just going to educate me on something I would need for a paragraph or two of, about, of this, in this piece I was writing about this, this weird, uh, lawsuit. Um, so that's, that's one example. I mean, that's just, so I just kind of bumped into them. Billy Bean. So as you get deeper, how do you like, what, where does that relationship start turning? I guess I'm wondering. It's some combination of, it's, 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 it, when do I start thinking this is a book or this is someone I want to write a lot about? It usually takes a couple of months. Um, and it takes a couple, I mean, I have a sense that maybe there's something there and I'll spend, you know, I'll sit down with him half a dozen times and get to know his world a bit and think, is this a character I can make swing on the page? Is this a situation that's worthy of like book length treatment? Am I interested enough to spend a year with the subject? All that stuff. Um, and I guess what happens is I start to see that there's something I want to write that's too big for a magazine piece. Mm-hmm. And often what happens is I'll call my publisher and I'll say, it's going to be a very short book. Can we do a 40,000 word book? And it has happened three or four times. And he, I think he knows exactly what's going on. He says, oh, yeah, sure. It's not a problem. Right. And he knows secretly that we're talking about 100,000 words and that when I get into it, I'll realize that. Um, so it just it kind of just mushrooms pretty naturally, and, it, and the the fuel for the mushrooming is just my curiosity, I'm just interested in it. So a lot of times when when you're profiling one of these people like Katsuyama or Billy Bean, you have to first deliver this whole system that they exist within. Um, in the case of Katsuyama, it's the system of Wall Street. Billy Bean, it's the general manager system, and these systems are are pretty complex and have a lot of lore. So once you have the right person. How do you start explaining to the reader how something that's really complicated works? Um, so I guess what I try to do is, as best I can, uh, do it through the, the story of the protagonist. So with Brad Katsuyama, for example, it's what the reader is basically le- learning about the markets as he learns about the markets. Um, and so. Uh, he becomes a proxy for the reader. Uh, and that's a really natural way to do it. So the big short was that way too. Sure. You have these characters trying to figure out what the hell was going on in the American financial system. And they don't know, they start out knowing nothing and they have to learn. And that's, that's a very valuable character because, because you can put the reader through what he went through and the reader doesn't feel stupid. The reader, the readers with someone who they can see is smart, but, but ignorant and it's okay to be, you give the reader, you know, feeling of being comfortable with ignorance so they can, so that they're not defensive. Right. Um, the Billy Bean is also, I'm just trying to think with the money ball, it was maybe a little different. Um, 
because Billy B had to unlearn stuff. Uh, I mean, he, it, 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 that was a bit of a different example, and it wasn't as complicated. I mean, the more the most complicated stuff I've had to explain are uh, are collateralized debt obligations in Big Short, yeah. the, the inner workings of the stock market in this one, and maybe mortgage bonds and liars poker. Um, apart from that, I, you know, I don't think actually anything I've explained is all that complicated. Uh, I like Moneyball, even the more complicated parts of Moneyball are all that complicated. Hey, it's your host, Aaron Lammer, here with a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible is the best audiobook service out there. I mean that. They've got over 150,000 titles to choose from. Let's say you're enjoying this interview with Michael Lewis, and how could you not? Uh, You could listen to Michael Lewis uh, reading his own book, Liar's Poker. You could also pick up his newest book, Flash Boys. Uh, Pretty much if you're thinking of a book, they've got it. Um, So if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform, that's audiblepodcast.com slash longform, sign up. Our listeners will get a free audiobook of their choice, a 30-day free trial, and of course, we'll be supporting the show. Um, I personally like to use it with this uh, feature where you can switch seamlessly between reading on the Kindle and listening. It's great for a car trip, uh, all sorts of uses for that. Anyway, thanks again to Audible for sponsoring us. Here I am with Michael Lewis. So I'm interested in, in the case of when you are dealing with a complicated system like that, where there's a certain dispute and you have someone like Katsuyama and he says, this is my version of how things work. How much, how much research and how much sort of opposition interviewing do you do to really understand it from both sides? Vast amounts. So in his case, uh, he's a peculiar case because, uh, in the way he was approaching it, not alone and not from a defensive posture of an opinion. He was just really trying to figure out what on earth was going on, and he was drawing in people from all over the industry who were informing him. So it was more than just to start with. It was more than just one man's view. It was it was people from the exchanges and people who worked in high frequency trading firms and people who'd been you know laying fiber optics and so on and so forth. Now what I do when I after I understand what they have learned to make sure that what that their point of view is valid. They're like they're not missing something huge, and I'm not about to present as true something that is just a fiction. I go and I talk to, for example, I mean, I probably interviewed a dozen high-frequency traders, but the way I do it, those people do almost to a man, there are a couple exceptions, do not want to talk on the record. Uh. They will talk to me on background and, and let me understand what they understand without, letting, without using their name or so on and so forth, and which is all I really need anyway because I'm telling Brad Katsuyama's story. I just want to make sure Brad Katsuyama hasn't screwed up his own story. Um, and so I do that. I do talk to... And, and, and every now and then, some of that slips into the narrative. But where, and it, it, what will ha- happen is I will uncover some piece. This is a weird case because the people at IX were so thorough and, and they were trying to do essentially what I was trying to do is just describe the market. But I'll, I'll, I'll uncover some piece that they can't give me themselves. So an example of that is there was a guy who I interviewed. So I interviewed people who bought customer order flow for high-frequency trading firms to exploit it 
from online brokers like Schwab and E-Trade and TD Ameritrade. And I interviewed the guy at TD Ameritrade who was famous in the industry for selling it, for selling very valuable customer order flows for high-frequency traders to exploit. Right. And that guy was willing to go on the record because he just left his job and having done it for the previous five or six years, uh, and tell me things that even Brad Kasiyama had never heard, which is rare. So he slips into the narrative, which is a violation of the narrative rules, which is I'm just trying to tell Brad's story through and these guys' story through their eyes. But it seemed like such important information I let it slip in. But for the most part, I don't. I most of the part, I go and learn about as much as I, I, I do lots of sort of checking interviews and it just all of it ends up on the cutting room floor. It's just to just to make sure that my protagonists, what they're saying is right. Someone's going to do a criterion Michael Lewis at some point. That's like a eight hundred thousand words of all the things that you've dropped. Um, so I'm interested <laughs> when you you said kind of like you're sort of all in on your protagonist. There, you're doing a lot of background stuff. But actually, can I give you one more example? Please. This is a, uh, so Moneyball, it's Billy Bean's story. It's the Oakland A's story, and they are what they're doing is present. And I present that as a radical departure from what other teams are doing. But I could only write that if I knew what other teams were doing. So I went and spent time with the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays and the Boston Red Sox, and I went. I, and so I went to make sure that I knew what was going on around baseball. All of it, all of it. Just and I, had a, I wrote a whole chapter about the Toronto Blue Jays that just ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, because when you actually sit down and write, you realize the story is a very small telescope story, and it loses its energy if you start to kind of wander all over the place and show people your work. How do you how do you represent yourself to like one of those side like, hey, I, I needed a loser team to also uh, talk to here. I mean, what do they think they're getting? <laughs> um, so uh, I, it's more <laughs> it's more I. That I I, I want I go in and I say I want to understand how you're doing how you're making your decisions mm. or I want to understand I talk to you about how you evaluate baseball players or how you evaluate baseball strategies. Now the Blue you know the Blue Jays were 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 following when I jumped into their organization they were following the A's model so they weren't as delicate an operation for me to deal with as say the Rangers right. at the time. Um, but there's always, I mean, you've got to make, you don't want to look like a fool. So you've got to make sure that the people who I am presenting is knowing what they're talking about, know what they talk about. Are you like, I would think with your profile currently, if you're out there trying to get interviews on Wall Street, there's like a memo circulating at Goldman that's like, do not talk to Michael Lewis. Just the opposite. Really? Uh, what, no, so Goldman actually invited me in. Um, in this case, uh, they heard I was doing what I was doing and they said, we're willing to talk on the record about it. Um, and I went and spent time in Goldman Sachs, had a little tour of the Goldman trading floor, all the rest. It was very, it was a little tense, uh, on the trading floor, but other than that, it was fine. Um, what happens is, so that is true in some cases that, that there's like an, the official memo, uh, I don't know if there's a memo goes out, but yes, there's an official reluctance to talk to me. But there is an unofficial great willingness to sit down and have a beer with me and on, you know, just for my own understanding, speak very freely with me about what's going on. So I get, I don't have any trouble getting people out for, for a beer, and, which is what I need. You know, once I have characters in a situation and I'm telling their story, I just need understanding. So I, I, don't, I don't really need anybody to put their head on a chopping block. You just need a bunch of alcohol. 
I need alcohol and, and actual knowledge without a fear that I'm going to do something bad to them so they can't actually tell me what's true. Uh, you know, I do a lot of that. Do you, so when you, when you say that even though you're, you're investigating all these sort of side corridors, you know that it's Katsayama, you know that it's Billy Bean, you kind of have all of, um, all of your eggs, so to speak, in one basket that that narrative has to play out. What if IEX is a flop, or you know, what what if what if something takes a radical turn? Are you also gambling on the fate of these individuals that what will happen to them will make an interesting book? Well, yes, a bit. I mean, if the A's had sucked the year that I wrote about them, it'd have been harder to write that story, right? But, yeah. But um, once I get in so deep, I'm unlikely to get out. Um, I do tend to have the view that whatever happens is going to be interesting, and that if if that I and I can use it. I also, you know, by the time I'm in that deep, I tend to have like a reason for trusting the people I'm writing about, like a reason for thinking they know what they're doing. Um, so, um, I mean, I guess I could get it, it, there is a there's an element of serendipity in all of it. I mean, say say the A's had been that's a it's a really good example because there's so much randomness and chance in sports. But say the A's had actually you know I was right that they did a really good job of putting their team together. But say everybody got hurt that year, um, I guess I would have been in a pickle. Thank right. God it didn't happen. Yeah, I mean that, and and even so, it's like. You know, when, when once it gets all the way to the movie, it's like the movie still doesn't have a fully Hollywood ending because they get to the playoffs and they don't go all the way. It's like the chance of it working out perfectly seems quite low. Well, have so, you, you know, can I stop you there? Because yeah. it's interesting. When I was writing the book and they lost in the playoffs, I thought it was the perfect ending because nobody would understand what they did. That they wouldn't understand that the playoffs are a crapshoot. Uh-huh. That you know, you can't orchestrate a team for the playoffs. You, you can't win all those games in the regular season. No matter how many games you win in the regular season, you're at the mercy of the gods in the playoffs. Right. And, and so it was, I thought, that, you know, when that happened, I thought, wow, this is great. It, 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 it sort of gets the point across I'm trying to get across, is that people will misunderstand the outcome of this season just because of what happened that was, you know, had a big element of chance in it. it it's true that it doesn't have a. It doesn't have the cliched uh, storybook ending, but it has an ending. Uh, with IX, this is a, this one's harder because it, you know IX. We leave them, and they've just launched, and you just don't know what's going to happen. It's up to the world around them. But I did feel like with this one um, that they were they were. They were like striking a blow. They were launching a revolution, and how they people respond to them was going to determine what happens not just to them but on Wall Street. And so I wanted to throw it to the reader that like you're now involved. They've given you a choice. You can know about this stuff. You can you can you you can take an interest in it. You can take control of your stock market orders. You can what you can get politically involved, or you or you can just let let them fail. <laughs> so I, you know the nice thing about nonfiction narrative to me is that it doesn't uh, line itself up naturally as a story all the time. Life does not. You have to figure out what the story is, and in figuring it out, you end, often end up in some original place 
and you're forced to that original place not because you've got this vast imagination, but because circumstances have kind of, you know, the facts are there before you, and you're, you, you're forced to deal with them. And, uh, and so that's, that's, to me, the excitement of the genre. Is that, are you reorganizing that as you go? Are you kind of finding a different story at different places and, and ending up somewhere different at the end? Um, I'm restructuring as I go all the time. It, it do, uh, so with, with Flash Boys, but the, you know, like I knew I had the story, the basic story was detective story. Guy sees something's going on in the stock market. He's supposed to know how this market works. He realizes he doesn't, and he goes on this, this quixotic quest to figure it all out involving all these other people and all this time and money and so on and so forth. So I knew that was the basic, the basic story. Uh, and then what happened then? I was at the, you know, I was at the mercy of what, it, what actually happened. And I would just, I waited for it to play out. I knew I wanted to wait till they launched. That's all I, when I was, because I, I met them. I met them at the end of 2012 and started to really hang out with them by kind of February of last year. And so I, and I, so I knew that I didn't want to write the book until they launched and I could see how the world reacted to their launch. Beyond that, I had no plans. I, I figured I'd let the story just tell me what it, what it, what it was about uh, as it unfolded. You've become quite experienced now at delivering these really incredible uh, narratives that, that sort of open up a, a different world. But if you were, say, 30 years younger right now, you potentially could be working at one of these high-frequency trading places or, or somewhere on Wall Street. If, if you had it over again and were young now, do you think you would have made the same move to journalism? Probably not. And, and the reason I say that, I mean, if you're, you're taking some version of me uh, that is now 23 years old. We'll put like tinkly music over this so, we, so it'll signal a flashback. <laughs> Uh, but it's so it's so I would have grown up in the world that a 23 year old now has grown up in, and for the first place, I would not have probably have serendipitously ended up on Wall Street in the first place. I would never have gotten a job, and I would not have probably not gone, gotten into Princeton. So I would have had a different trajectory in life probably right from the start. You had a very negative view of future time traveling, Michael Lewis. Yeah, no, going backwards. Going if you took me the other direction, I might even be more of a success. Like going, but the, comp the competition has gotten steeper, uh, gotten stiffer, and so I, I assume I would do less well. Uh, come at, at age, I would be less well positioned for like Wall Street success at 23 now than I was when I was 23. But let's say, let's say I was you adjust me slightly and my character slightly so that I got A's in school all the time and my board scores were perfect and I was student body president and captain of the football team and so I got to go to Princeton and I worked my way into the position to get a job at Goldman Sachs. The amount of investment I would have put into getting that success would have made it virtually impossible that I would have turned my back on it. The, the key to me, my decision to like chuck a Wall Street career and go be a writer is that I'd put almost no effort into getting a Wall Street career. It had really landed in my lap. And I had this other thing that I had put a lot of effort into and really loved doing, which was writing. Uh, and I'd done it all on my own without any you know, like help from teachers or anything. I was just you know, trying to freelance and having some success at it. Um, 
that, it's that it made it very easy for me to just walk away from it because it didn't. I hadn't invested anything to get to get it. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do that now. You'd have to have invested so much to have the success on Wall Street. You couldn't imagine walking away from it. Plus, when you add in the numbers, I mean, I walked away from. What did they pay me? Two hundred twenty-five grand bonus the last year, the second year I was there. This is in the eighties. This was eighty. So what is that like? Five hundred thousand now, probably. Yeah, eighty. Like half of it is eighty-seven. So they, whatever it is, they five hundred thousand now. But and they said, you know, you'll be making a million bucks a year in a couple of years, kind of thing. But now that person now would be thinking, I'll be making ten million dollars in a couple of years, and the sums of money have gotten so much greater that I think it would be impossible for me to make that decision. So let's talk about that investment, because one would assume that you are now fairly invested in writing as a career. Um, starting off from like when you started working on, on Liar's Poker or started doing those first freelance assignments, how did you get better? How did you, even having a hit first book, how did you start working on that craft, and, and what were the major things you did that you feel like improved what you did? Um. So I will list them in order of what I think was important. I wrote in the very beginning, I was living in London, and I wrote lots of long letters to friends in which I tried to entertain them. That was really actually good training. And uh, the I read, I was always a very energetic, natural kind of reader. I mean, I, I, I read, I just read uh, carefully. So I read a lot. But I think reading helps a lot. But the big thing I did was, so I fell in love with the New Republic under my, that Michael Kinsley edited, and I remember like never having heard of the New Republic. A friend mentioned this to me, and I went into the London School of Economics library, and I read like seventy issues of the thing. I thought, oh, and I thought, oh my god! And in, a, in an informal way, I sort of apprenticed myself to the New Republic, even after Liars Poker came out. I moved in, I spent a few years there, I did all kinds of. I mean, I experimented with lots of forms. I wrote the diary all the time. I wrote essays. I never written an essay in my life, um, and I and I was surrounded by, I mean, some of the best writers of our time. I think journalists. Kinsley was there. Andrew Sullivan, Bob Wright. Uh, I mean, it was one after another. Leon Weaseltier. There were it was there were really talented people, and so I think I learned a lot there. Um, I, I had success before I had training and then I just learned a lot doing that. So what would I advise people? If you can find a really good editor and Kinsley was a fabulous editor and so was Andrew Sullivan, you, they kind of get this, they, it, what their effect on you is profound because in the first place they start to kind of correct your worst tendencies and you, you realize what they are. And then you start to hear their voices when you're writing. And then it just sort of melds, whatever their excellence was, it sort of melds into your, into your literary character uh, if, you take, if, you, if you let them in. And uh, as long as you remain kind of yourself at the same time, you get, you get this new strength from them. So I feel like that. I just, I just had really gifted editors in my life who taught me a lot. Without ever it being explicitly a teacher-pupil relationship. Was it difficult after doing Liar's Poker, which is so heavily based on, on your personal experience and you having this uh, in into that world, to start doing stories that were purely reported? Oddly, no. And if you look at Liar's Poker, you'll see that in the, in the middle of it, I disguised as kind of part of my personal journey 
about 80 pages of really heavily reported stuff on the birth of the mortgage bond market, and which I did all after I left Solomon Brothers. Um, and I made it kind of seem like I was the fly on the wall. I mean, I, I mean just the, with the structure, because it it, my experience led into this, and then out of this came my experience again. But I, I, done, I had done that before. Uh, and that came naturally. I felt very comfortable doing that. So no, the harder thing for me, the harder thing was, um, it was not reporting and writing about other things than myself. It was the essay form. I mean, it, that argu- the making of an argument. Um, I had never in my life done it. And it was painful and interesting to learn how to do. Um, and very, but very useful. Uh, so that form was the form that I found the most difficult. What was it about the essay that gave you trouble? I didn't think it an essay. I thought in stories. And so, um, uh, I just had never, I just never, it wasn't so much trouble as it was. I, it just, I'd never done it before and how to make an eye, give an idea sort of the quality of the uh, qualities of action on the page. I just thought it that was a new thing. Um, and then it was so, once I figured out kind of more by feel than any kind of rule how to do it, it was, it was, it was actually dangerously liberating. There was a time at the New Republic where I could have argued that murder was good and I would have felt perfectly comfortable, uh, you know, that you just got so facile at making an argument on the page uh, because I was surrounded by the masters at this thing. That's, and that's what they were so good at that I just never had done. Um, so uh, it was that was you know that that was the form that I had the the most most difficulty with because I just didn't come it, it wasn't something I'd ever done before but it was the thing that it it even though it's different from what I do now um, it's really helped me to have done that and I can't I have to think about why but it's just. It's uh, it just broadened me as a writer. Let's talk about that idea of making an argument because the thing that actually surprised me the most when I read Flash Boys was how clearly the the authorial voice, the Michael Lewis, was saying, "Hey, this is screwed up, and we should do something about it." And that wasn't something I've heard. All not all of your writing has that kind of an argument. Did you feel like with this book, you are stepping into a sort of activist role? It was hard to avoid it because in, as a, when you're telling a story, you, you're essentially playing the cards you're dealt. And you figure out what cards you've got to play, and then you figure out how to play the hand. The cards that I had to play, it was a very black and white hand. It was, I, I think it's very clear that one side of this, that these characters were kind of good, fighting a kind of an evil system, a bad system. And it was that clear. It, it normally hasn't been that clear. Um, so when it's that clear, I, you know, how do you do that? How do you handle that? It's, it's in a way, it's unfortunate. It's that clear. It's, it's harder to tell an interesting story when it's when the when the truth of the matter is so black and white. Uh, you have to find sources of interest elsewhere. But it naturally for it naturally puts me in the position of saying I'm on this side or rather than this side because it, I mean just. I don't know how you avoid it. So when you get played into a corner that way, how do you then judge sort of the success of the book? Does it does that change when you have a message? I haven't thought that far about this, but you know it's funny you say that because 
this book obviously has had this kind of the only other book I've ever written that has has had this kind of um, practical response to it. The instant practical response is Moneyball, where you felt right on, as the book is coming out, like people are getting fired and old scouts are getting fired and front owners are saying they're going to run their baseball teams differently and all this stuff is happening. And you feel like, I felt like that that was a case where the book actually had effects. And I feel it with this one too. So how do I judge? You know, the effects are kind of off to one side for me, the way I judge the books. I think... I think how well did I play the hand? Uh, I, I know what the hand was. I know how hard it was to play in each case. Sometimes the hand is very easy to play. The liar's poker was a very easy hand to play. Uh, and sometimes the hand is difficult to play. The new, new thing was a very difficult hand to play. Um, and uh, I just kind of think, is, did I, is there anything I would do done differently? Is there any trick I missed? And if I don't have the feeling that I missed something big, I feel happy about the book. And I don't have the feeling there's something big in this case. Let's talk about uh, shitty poker hands, because uh, I think generally people are known for their best works. And um, I think people don't want to talk a lot about failure. But whether you would call the the new new thing a failure or not, it was definitely uh, not the expected uh, next step after writing this huge book. And there was about a 10-year span. Can you talk about what writing that book was like and, and what a, a shitty hand consists of? Um, I can. So the new, new thing, playing a different, it was a difficult hand to play. It was an incredibly successful book. Best reviews I ever got, uh, and sold as well as sold better than liars poker did, but it was still, I, when I, when I finished it, I thought that thing was a pain in the ass to write. And unlike liars poker. And it was the first thing, it was the first time I really, was it 10 years? I guess it was. I come back to that kind of length of, of, of narrative. Um, when I think of books that have been problems that, I mean, just like where, where I feel when I finished it, I thought this doesn't quite work. That isn't one of them. The one after that is true. The problems are always when I try to paste together magazine pieces, that's where I get in trouble. Um, it's, it, that was true with Next. It was true with the money culture. It was true. These these collections just are are naturally uh, unsatisfying. So I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to jump. Thank you so much for coming on, Michael. We would love to have you back. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Michael Lewis. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max and Evan, our wonderful editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Sarah Button. Uh, if you like the show, uh, please go on iTunes and rate us, check us out on Stitcher, or just send us an email. Uh, that would be at editors at longform.org. Uh, and we love feedback. We love to hear who you'd like to have on the show soon. Uh, see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.